Chapter 16 of McClellan's Own Story by George Brinton McClellan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Manalakis. Chapter 16 Effects of Reduction of the Army. Overthrow of the Campaign. New Campaign with Reduced Army. Siege of Yorktown. Soon after receiving the telegram, I sent the following to the Secretary of War, dated April 5th. The enemy are in large force along our front, and apparently intend making a determined resistance. A reconnaissance just made by General Barnard shows that their line of works extends across the entire peninsula, from Yorktown to Warwick River. Many of them are formidable. Deserters say that they are being reinforced daily from Richmond and from Norfolk. Under the circumstances, I beg that you will reconsider the order detaching the First Corps from my command. In my deliberate judgment, the success of our cause will be imperiled by so greatly reducing my force, when it is actually under the fire of the enemy, and active operations have commenced. Two of my divisions have been under fire of artillery during most of the day. I am now of the opinion that I shall have to fight all the available force of the rebels not far from here. Do not force me to do so with diminished ranks, but whatever your decision may be, I will leave nothing undone to obtain success. If you cannot leave me the whole of the First Corps, I urgently ask, as a military necessity, that I may not lose Franklin and his division. On the same day, at 10 p.m., I sent the following to Secretary Stanton. Since General Woodbury's brigade of volunteer engineer troops was only temporarily attached to the First Corps for special service, and is much needed here, I have directed General Woodbury to bring it here at once. Their services are indispensable. The following letter was written during the evening of April 5th. Headquarters, Army of Potomac, Camp near Yorktown, April 5th, 1862. Brigadier General L. Thomas, Adjutant General, USA. General. I have now a distinct knowledge of the general position of the enemy in my front. His left is in Yorktown. His line thence extends along and in rear of the Warwick River to its mouth. That stream is an obstacle of great magnitude. It is fordable at only one point, so far as I yet know, below its head, which is near Yorktown. It is for several miles unfordable and has generally a very marshy valley. His batteries and entrenchments render this line an exceedingly formidable one, entirely too much so, so far as I now understand it, to be carried by a simple assault. I shall employ tomorrow in reconnaissances, repairing roads, establishing a depot at Ship's Point, and in bringing up supplies. Porter, the head of the right column, has moved as close upon the town as the enemy's guns will permit. He is in camp there, supported by Hamilton's division. Porter has been under fire all the afternoon, but five men killed. His rifled field guns and sharpshooters have caused some loss to the enemy. Keyes, with two divisions, is in front of Lee's Mill, where the road from Newport News to Williamsburg crosses Warwick River. He has been engaged in an artillery combat of several hours' duration, losing some five killed. At Lee's Mill we have a causeway covered by formidable batteries. The information obtained at Fort Monroe in regard to the topography of the country and the position and strength of the enemy has been unreliable. He is in strong force and very strong position. If the reconnaissances of tomorrow verify the observations of today, 
we shall be obliged to use much heavy artillery before we can force their lines and isolate the garrison of Yorktown. I omitted to state that I hold the reserves in a central position until I can learn more of the condition of affairs. The present aspect of affairs renders it exceedingly unfortunate that the First Corps has been detached from my command. It is no longer in my power to make a movement from the Severn River upon Gloucester and West Point. I am reduced to a front attack upon a very strong line. I still hope that the order detaching the First Corps may be reconsidered. I do not feel that without it I have force sufficient to accomplish the objects I have proposed in this campaign, with that certainty, rapidity, and completeness which I had hoped to obtain. The departments will, I trust, realize that more caution will be needed on my part, after having been so unexpectedly deprived of so very large a portion of my force, when actually having my troops under fire. I have frankly stated what I now consider to be the strength of the enemy's position, the reconnaissances of tomorrow may modify my opinion. Whatever the facts may be, I shall make the best use I can of the force at my disposal, determined to gain my point as completely and as rapidly as may be. Very respectfully, your obedient servant, George B. McClellan, Major General, Commanding. P.S. All my movements up to this evening were predicated upon the expectation that no more troops would be detached from my command. I have involved my troops in actual conflict upon that supposition, and calculating upon the prompt arrival of the First Corps as part of the program. It has just occurred to me to say that the maps of the peninsula I sent to the President and Secretary are perfectly unreliable. The roads are wrong, and the Warwick River crosses the Newport News and Williamsburg Road some three miles above Warwick Courthouse, which latter place is about one mile from the road. George B. McClellan, Major General this, then, was the situation in which I found myself on the evening of April 5th. Flag Officer Goldsboro had informed me that it was not in his power to control the navigation of the James River so as to enable me to use it as a line of supply, or to cross it, or even to cover my left flank. Nor could he, as he thought, furnish any vessels to attack the batteries of Yorktown and Gloucester, or to run by them in the dark and thus cut off the supplies of the enemy by water and control their land communication. I was thus deprived of the cooperation of the Navy, and left to my own resources. I had been deprived of five infantry divisions, and out of the four left to me there were present at the front five divisions of volunteer regiments, the weak brigade of regulars, Hunt's artillery reserve, and a small cavalry force. Owing to the lack of wagons, Casey did not reach Young's Mill until the 16th. Richardson's division reached the front on the same day. Hooker's division commenced arriving at Ship's Point on the 10th. The roads were so bad and wagons so few that it was with the utmost difficulty supplies could be brought up, and the field artillery moved with great difficulty. Even the headquarters wagons could not get up, and I slept in a deserted hut with my saddle blanket for a bed. My telegram of April 7th to the President shows that only 53,000 men had joined me so that I had not more than 44,000 effectives, and found myself in front of a position which apparently could not be carried by assault. The force was too small to attempt any movement to turn Gloucester without the assistance of the Navy, and I was obliged to abandon the plan of rapid-turning movements which I had intended to carry out. All that could be done was to halt where we were, and by close reconnaissances ascertain whether there were 
any weak points which we could assault, or, failing in that, determine what could be effected with the aid of siege artillery to cover the attack. Next day, April 6th, I sent the following telegram to His Excellency the President. The order forming new departments, if rigidly enforced, deprives me of the power of ordering up wagons and troops absolutely necessary to enable me to advance to Richmond. I have by no means the transportation I must have to move my army even a few miles. I respectfully request that I may not be placed in this position, but that my orders for wagons, trains, and ammunition, and other material that I have prepared and necessarily left behind me, as well as Woodbury's brigade, may at once be complied with. The enemy is strong in my front, and I have a most serious task before me, in the fulfillment of which I need all the aid the government can give me. I again repeat the urgent request that General Franklin and his division may be restored to my command. I received the following reply from Secretary Stanton. The President directs me to say that your dispatch to him has been received. General Sumner's Corps is on the road to you and will go forward as fast as possible. Franklin's division is now on the advance towards Manassas. There is no means of transportation here to send it forward in time to be of service in your present operations. Telegraph frequently, and all in the power of the government shall be done to sustain you as occasion may require. And this from the President. Yours of 11 a.m. today received. Secretary of War informs me that the forwarding of transportation, ammunition, and Woodbury's brigade under your order has not and will not be interfered with. You now have over 100,000 troops with you, independent of General Wool's command. I think you had better break the enemy's line from Yorktown to Warwick River at once. This will probably use time as advantageously as you can. A. Lincoln, President. To this I replied April 7th to the President. Your telegram of yesterday received. In reply, I have the honor to state that my entire force for duty only amounts to about 85,000 men. General Wool's command, as you will observe from the accompanying order, has been taken out of my control, although he has most cheerfully cooperated with me. The only use that can be made of his command is to protect my communications in rear of this point. At this time, only 53,000 men have joined me, but they are coming up as rapidly as my means of transportation will permit. Please refer to my dispatch to the Secretary of War of tonight for the details of our present situation. I find on the back of my retained copy of this dispatch the following memorandum made at the time by myself. Return of March 31, 1862 shows men present for duty 171,602. Deduct 1st Corps Infantry and Artillery 32,119. Deduct Blanker 8,616. Deduct Banks, 21,739. Deduct Wadsworth, 19,318. Deduct Cavalry of First Corps, etc., 1,600. Deduct Cavalry of Blanker, 800. Deduct Van Allen and Wyndham, 1,600. Total, 85,792. 85,810, officers about 3,900, total absent from whole command, 23,796. As this memorandum was a calculation to ascertain only the number of troops left under my command, 
it did not take into consideration all the troops left behind which did not compose parts of the total of 171,602 for duty. My letters of April 1st show that many more were left in addition to those mentioned in this memorandum. The telegram referred to in my dispatch to the President was the following, of April 7th, to Secretary Stanton. Your telegram of yesterday arrived here while I was absent examining the enemy's right, which I did pretty closely. The whole line of the Warwick, which really heads within a mile of Yorktown, is strongly defended by detached redoubts and other fortifications, armed with heavy and light guns. The approaches, except at Yorktown, are covered by the Warwick, over which there is but one, or at most two, passages, both which are covered by strong batteries. It will be necessary to resort to the use of heavy guns and some siege operations before we assault. All the prisoners state that General J.E. Johnston arrived at Yorktown yesterday with strong reinforcements. It seems clear that I shall have the whole force of the enemy on my hands, probably not less than 100,000 men and possibly more. In consequence of the loss of Blanker's division and the First Corps, my force is possibly less than that of the enemy, while they have all the advantage of position. I am under great obligations to you for the offer that the whole force and material of the government will be as fully and as speedily under my command as heretofore, or as if the new departments had not been created. Since my arrangements were made for this campaign, at least 50,000 men have been taken from my command. Since my dispatch of the 5th instant, five divisions have been in close observation of the enemy and frequently exchanging shots. When my present command all joins, I shall have about 85,000 men for duty, from which a large force must be taken for guards, scouts, etc. With this army I could assault the enemy's works, and perhaps carry them. But were I in possession of their entrenchments, and assailed by double my numbers, I should have no fears as to the result. Under the circumstances that have been developed since we arrived here, I feel fully impressed with the conviction that here is to be fought the great battle that is to decide the existing contest. I shall, of course, commence the attack as soon as I can get up my siege train, and shall do all in my power to carry the enemy's works, but to do this with a reasonable degree of certainty requires, in my judgment, that I should, if possible, have at least the whole of the First Corps to land upon the Severn River and attack Gloucester in the rear. My present strength will not admit of a detachment sufficient for this purpose without materially impairing the efficiency of this column. Flag Officer Goldsboro thinks the works too strong for his available vessels unless I can turn Gloucester. I send by mail copies of his letter and one of the commander of the gunboats here. General Keyes, commanding 4th Army Corps, after the examination of the enemy's defenses on the left, addressed the following letter to the Honorable Ira Harris, U.S. Senate, and gave me a copy. It describes the situation at the time in some respects so well that I introduce it here. Headquarters, 4th Corps, Warwick Courthouse, Virginia, April 7, 1862. My dear Senator, the plan of campaign on this line was made with the distinct understanding that four Army Corps should be employed and that the Navy should cooperate in the taking of Yorktown, and also, as I understood it, support us on our left by moving gunboats up James River. Today I have learned that the First Corps, which by the President's order was to embrace four divisions, and one division, Blankers of the Second Corps, 
have been withdrawn altogether from this line of operations and from the Army of the Potomac. At the same time, as I am informed, the Navy has not the means to attack Yorktown, and is afraid to send gunboats up James River for fear of the Merrimack. The above plan of campaign was adopted unanimously by Major General McDowell and Brigadier Generals Sumner, Heintzelman, and Keyes, and was concurred in by Major General McClellan, who first proposed Urbana as our base. This army, being reduced by 45,000 troops, some of them among the best in the service, and without the support of the Navy, the plan to which we are reduced bears scarcely any resemblance to the one I voted for. I command the James River Column and I left my camp near Newport News the morning of the 4th instant. I only succeeded in getting my artillery ashore the afternoon of the day before, and one of my divisions had not all arrived in camp the day I left, and for the want of transportation has not yet joined me. So you will observe that not a day was lost in the advance, and in fact we marched so quickly and so rapidly that many of our animals were twenty-four and forty-eight hours without a ration of forage." but notwithstanding the rapidity of our advance, we were stopped by a line of defense nine or ten miles long, strongly fortified by breastworks, erected nearly the whole distance behind a stream or succession of ponds, nowhere fordable, one terminus being Yorktown, and the other ending in the James River, which is commanded by the enemy's gunboats. Yorktown is fortified all around with bastioned works, and on the water side, it and Gloucester are so strong that the Navy are afraid to attack either. The approaches on one side are generally through low, swampy, or thickly wooded ground, over roads which we are obliged to repair or to make before we can get forward our carriages. The enemy is in great force and is constantly receiving reinforcements from the two rivers. The line in front of us is therefore one of the strongest ever opposed to an invading force in any country. You will then ask why I advocated such a line for our operations? My reasons are few, but I think good. With proper assistance from the Navy, we could take Yorktown, and then with gunboats on both rivers we could beat any force opposed to us on Warwick River, because the shot and shell from the gunboats would nearly overlap across the peninsula, so that if the enemy should retreat, and retreat he must, he would have a long way to go without rail or steam transportation, and every soul of his army must fall into our hands or be destroyed. Another reason for my supporting the new base and plan was that this line, it was expected, would furnish water transportation nearly to Richmond. Now supposing we succeed in breaking through the line in front of us, what can we do next? The roads are very bad, and if the enemy retains command of James River, and we do not first reduce Yorktown, it would be impossible for us to subsist this army three marches beyond where it is now. As the roads are at present, it is with the utmost difficulty that we can subsist it in the position it now occupies. You will see, therefore, by what I have said, that the force originally intended for the capture of Richmond should be all sent forward. If I thought the four Army Corps necessary when I supposed the Navy would cooperate, and when I judged of the obstacles to be encountered by what I learned from maps and the opinions of officers long stationed at Fort Monroe, and from all other sources, how much more should I think the full complement of troops requisite now that the Navy cannot cooperate, and now that the strength of the enemy's lines and the number of his guns and men proved to be almost immeasurably greater than I had been led to expect? The line in front of us, in the opinion of all the military men here who are at all competent to judge, 
is one of the strongest in the world, and the force of the enemy capable of being increased beyond the numbers we now have to oppose to him. Independently of the strength of the lines in front of us, and of the force of the enemy behind them, we cannot advance until we get command of either York River or James River. The efficient cooperation of the Navy is, therefore, absolutely essential, and so I considered it when I voted to change our base from the Potomac to Fort Monroe. An ironclad boat must attack Yorktown, and if several strong gunboats can be sent up James River also, our success will be certain and complete, and the rebellion will soon be put down. On the other hand, we must butt against the enemy's works with heavy artillery and a great waste of time, life, and material. If we break through in advance, both our flanks will be assailed from two great water courses in the hands of the enemy. Our supplies would give out, and the enemy, equal, if not superior, in numbers, would, with the other advantages, beat and destroy this army. The greatest master of the art of war has said that if you would invade a country successfully, you must have one line of operations and one army under one general. But what is our condition? The state of Virginia is made to constitute the command, in part or wholly, of some six generals, viz. Fremont, Banks, McDowell, Wool, Burnside, and McClellan, besides the scrap over the Chesapeake in the care of Dix. The great battle of the war is to come off here. If we win it, the rebellion will be crushed. If we lose it, the consequences will be more horrible than I care to foretell. The plan of campaign I voted for, if carried out with the means proposed, will certainly succeed. If any part of the means proposed are withheld or diverted, I deem it due to myself to say that our success will be uncertain. It is no doubt agreeable to the commander of the First Corps to have a separate department, and as this letter advocates his return to General McClellan's command, it is proper to state that I am not at all influenced by personal regard or dislike to any of my seniors in rank. If I were to credit all the opinions which have been poured into my ears, I must believe that, in regard to my present fine command, I owe much to General McDowell and nothing to General McClellan. But I have disregarded all such officiousness, and I have, from last July to the present day, supported General McClellan and obeyed all his orders with as hearty a good will as though he had been my brother or the friend to whom I owed most. I shall continue to do so to the last and so long as he is my commander, and I am not desirous to displace him, and would not if I could. He left Washington with the understanding that he was to execute a definite plan of campaign with certain prescribed means. The plan was good, and the means sufficient, and without modification the enterprise was certain of success. But with the reduction of force and means, the plan is entirely changed, and is now a bad plan, with means insufficient for certain success. Do not look upon this communication as the offspring of despondency. I never despond, and when you see me working the hardest, you may be sure that fortune is frowning upon me. I am working now to my utmost. Please show this letter to the President, and I should like also that Mr. Stanton should know its contents. Do me the honor to write to me as soon as you can, and believe me, with perfect respect, your most obedient servant, E.D. Keyes, Brigadier General Commanding 4th Army Corps. Honorable Ira Harris, U.S. Senate. The reconnaissances of the 6th and 7th and following days, 
pushed with great vigor and with some loss, confirmed the impressions gained on the 5th. I verified all these reconnaissances in person, going everywhere beyond our lines of pickets, and resuming my old trade of a reconnoitering officer, so anxious was I to find a practicable point of attack. In fact, during the whole siege I exposed myself more in this way than was proper for a general commanding an army, but I had had far more personal experience in sieges than any of those under my command, and trusted more to my own knowledge and experience than I then could to theirs. It was found that the Warwick Valley headed within 2,000 yards of the Encentier of Yorktown, and within half that distance of the White Redoubt, or Fort Magruder, a strong work, essentially a part of the main works at Yorktown, which were so strong, having ditches from 8 to 10 feet deep, and more than 15 feet wide at the top, and so heavily armed with siege and garrison guns, as to render an assault hopeless. The interval between Yorktown and the Warwick was occupied by strong works, and all the open ground in front, as well as the direct approaches to the town itself, so thoroughly swept by the direct fire of more than fifty guns of the heaviest calibers then known, as to render it an act of madness to assault without first silencing the fire of the enemy's artillery. From its head to Lee's Mill, the Warwick was flooded by means of artificial inundations, which rendered it unfordable. The dams constructed for this purpose were all covered by strong works so situated as to be unassailable until their artillery fire was reduced. Below Lee's Mill, the river was a tidal stream, not fordable at any stage of the tide. That portion, moreover, was controlled by the fire of the Confederate gunboats in the James River. The valley of the Warwick was generally low and swampy. The approaches to the dams were through dense forests and deep swamps, and every precaution had been taken by the enemy, in the way of felling timber and constructing works, to make a crossing as difficult as possible. In his report of the 6th of May, immediately after the occupation of Yorktown, General Bernard, chief engineer of the Army of the Potomac, says, they, referring to the groups of works covering the Warwick, are far more extensive than may be supposed from the mention of them I make, and every kind of obstruction which the country affords, such as abatis, marsh, inundation, etc., was skillfully used. The line is certainly one of the most extensive known to modern times. The country on both sides, the Warwick, from near Yorktown down, is a dense forest with few clearings. It was swampy, and the roads impassable during the heavy rains we have constantly had, except where our own labors had corduroyed them. If we could have broken the enemy's line across the isthmus, we could have invested Yorktown, and it must, with its garrison, have soon fallen into our hands. It was not deemed practicable considering the strength of that line and the difficulty of handling our forces, owing to the impracticable character of the country, to do so. If we could take Yorktown or drive the enemy out of that place, the enemy's line was no longer tenable. This we could do by siege operations. It was deemed too hazardous to attempt the reduction of the place by assault. The operations of the siege required extensive preparations. I regret that there is not time and means to prepare a complete plan of this enormous system of defenses. They should form part of the record of the operations of the Army of the Potomac. The forcing of such a line with so little loss is in itself an exploit, less brilliant perhaps, but more worthy of study, than would have been a murderous assault, even had it proved successful.
I need only add to this that General Barnard never expressed to me any opinion that an assault was practicable upon any part of the enemy's defenses. From his first reconnaissances, he was decidedly of the opinion that the use of heavy guns was necessary. More than this, I never at the time heard of any contrary opinion from anyone, and so far as I know, there was entire unanimity on the part of the general officers and chiefs of staff departments that the course pursued was the only one practicable under the circumstances. From Lee's Mill, a line of works extended to the enemy's rear to Skiff's Creek, so that if we had forced the passage of the Warwick below that point, we would have found a new line of defense in front of us, completely covering the enemy's communications. During the progress of these reconnaissances, every effort was made to bring up supplies and ammunition. A violent storm beginning on the 6th and continuing without cessation for three or four days almost entirely interrupted the water communication between Fortress Monroe and Ship Point and made the already bad roads terrible beyond description. In those days, I more than once thought of reply to me by an old general of Cossacks who had served in all the Russian campaigns against Napoleon. I had asked how the roads were in those days, to which he replied, My son, the roads are always bad in war. It was not until the 10th that we were able to establish a new depot on Cheeseman's Creek, which shortened the hall about three miles. The rains continued almost incessantly, and it was necessary not only to detail large working parties to unload supplies, but details of some thousands of men were required to corduroy the roads, as the only means of enabling us to get up supplies. As illustrating the condition of things, I insert the following dispatch from Mr. John Tucker, Assistant Secretary of War, dated near Yorktown, April 10th, to Honorable E.M. Stanton, Secretary of War. I reached General McClellan's headquarters at 7 this evening, having had an accident to the steamer on the way from Fortress Monroe to Ship Point. I was five hours on horseback, making about five miles, the roads being almost impassable and so entirely occupied with army wagons, I frequently had to leave the road and take to the woods. The severe storm at Fortress Monroe prevented transports from leaving for several days. The facilities for landing at Ship Point are very poor, and for several days it must have been next to impossible to move artillery over such roads. I learned that 12,000 men are engaged in repairing and building new roads. The difficulties of transportation have been so great that some of the cavalry horses had to be sent back to keep them from starving. I will report my observations of army movements tomorrow, but I see an earnest determination to lose no time in attacking the enemy. John Tucker, Assistant Secretary of War. The following telegram was sent, as indicated, on April 10th to Brigadier General Thomas, Adjutant General. I examined the works on enemy's left very carefully today. They are very strong. The approach is difficult. Enemy in force and confident. Water batteries at York and Gloucester, said to be much increased, have not seen them myself. Have not yet received reports of engineer officers. I go tomorrow to examine our left. Sharp firing on our right for some time today while I was there. No harm done, though their shells burst handsomely. I'm receiving supplies from Ship Point, repairing roads, getting up siege artillery, etc., it seems now almost certain that we must use mortars and heavy guns freely before assaulting. The naval officers urge an attack in rear of Gloucester. I think they are right. But I'm now too weak to attempt it, unless new circumstances come to my knowledge. The affair will be protracted in consequence of the diminution of my force. 
The following was sent to Honorable E.M. Stanton, Secretary of War, on April 8th. Weather terrible. Raining heavily last 28 hours. Roads and camps in awful condition. Very little firing today. Reconnaissances being continued under disadvantageous circumstances. General Sumner has arrived. Most of Richardson's division at Ship Point. I cannot move it from there in present condition of roads until I get more wagons. I need more force to make the attack on Gloucester. To Brigadier General L. Thomas on April 9th. Weather still execrable. Country covered with water. Roads terrible. It is with the utmost difficulty that I can supply the troops. We are doing an immense deal of work on the roads. Cannot land siege train until wind moderates. Reconnaissances being pushed and point of attack pretty well determined. Rebels have thrown 10-inch and 12-inch shells yesterday and today without effect. I have now placed all the troops in bivouac just out of shell range, holding all our advanced positions with strong detachments well sheltered. I shall not lose an unnecessary hour in placing our heavy guns in battery, and will assault at the earliest practicable moment. The conduct of the troops is excellent. End of Part 1 of Chapter 16